This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you live in Chicago and you need to request a city service or file a non-emergency police report, you call the 311 hotline. It's also a resource for getting connected to immediate shelter. The call center has received more than double the requests since before the pandemic. And now with the growing migrant crisis, the city's 311 helpline is struggling to keep up with a surge in calls for shelter. WBEZ reporters Anna Savchenko and Amy Chin join us now with the latest. Hi. Hello, Sasha. Hey, Sasha. So, Anna, you both started investigating the city's 311 helpline earlier this year. Why? Why was this something that you wanted to look at? So in, in March, I went to the Forest Park CTA station um, and uh, a social service agency called the Night Ministry. They uh, set up shop there once a week and they offer hot meals and medical medical care to unhoused people there. Um, and I was talking to the people that were queuing up and I was asking them, what do you guys need? And most of them told me that they needed a place to sleep. Um, other than the train or, I don't know, some alleyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked, well, have you tried to get a shelter bed or anything of that sort? And most of the people said that it's almost impossible to get one. And I even spoke to a caseworker that was on duty there that night, and I asked her, how difficult is it for you to find one of your clients a bed? And she told me that in a year on the job, she's never actually successfully been able to get one of her clients a bed. And I thought that was bizarre. Wow. So, and, and so some of us, uh, Anna, have, not, have never dialed 311, right? Yes. So, so walk us through what that's like. How does the hotline work for shelter requests? What's a phone call sound like? Yeah. So you pick up the phone, you dial 311. Uh, there's a lit menu sort of thing that comes up. They ask you which what you're looking for. If it's uh, shelter requests, you press a certain number. Then you wait to get matched to an agent. An agent will ask you some intake questions like, uh, are you safe? Do you need transportation? Uh, that sort of thing. After that, um, they tell you that it might take up to 48 hours for someone to get back to you. When the call ends, they send you a message with your service request number, which is essentially what you use to track your request. Mm -hmm. And if all goes smoothly after that, uh, someone from the Salvation Army, which is a social service agency that uh, the city contracts to manage the shelter coordination system, they will coordinate shelter for you. They will send a van to pick you up from your location and then transport you to the shelter which you have been matched with. Mm -hmm. um, but what we know from the data is that, that doesn't always happen. Not like that. So tell us more, Amy, about how the city is tracking these calls. Yeah, so they have one kind of centralized database in Salesforce that, um, like Anna said, uses service request numbers to track calls. And it, they track all the information that they ask in the intake. Although, of course, some of that information we can't request because it's kind of uh, identifying information about a person. But they also track um, what happens to that call, theoretically, yeah. <laughs> the outcome. And that's kind of what we saw was really, really spotty. Yeah, you found some flaws in the data that's making it hard for a lot of people to actually get some help, right? Exactly. What, what's going on exactly? Yeah, so we, we're seeing just, you know, a skyrocketing number of calls, um, but we actually can't really tell what's happening to the majority of those calls. Um, in fact, I think 75% of those calls are marked with an outcome that is basically a catch-all category. So uh, the city and the Department of Family and Support Services, which is the uh, department that kind of oversees the system, 
they told us that these two categories, these two kind of catch-all categories, could mean anything from someone actually getting placed in a bed for the night to a request getting canceled. It's a to it being a duplicate call to someone, um, you know, telling them that they're at an address but not actually being there Mm -hmm. or them just not having enough beds. So it could really mean anything, which is kind of meaningless. So after the fact, there's no way to go back in and see, Okay, John Smith called for a shelter and this is exactly what happened after John Smith called. Not to our knowledge and not based on the data we saw. So, Anna, what happens to people who aren't able to get connected to immediate shelter? We don't know because these numbers are just so spotty. Um, They stay on the streets. They keep sleeping in alleyways. They keep sleeping on trains. And they rely on social service agencies like the Night Ministry or Haymarket, which do outreach, very specific outreach on the red and blue CTA lines and you know, they offer unhoused people medical care and, and hot meals and that sort of stuff. But we just know that there are so many people that are falling through the cracks of the system. And just for reference, we uh, asked uh, DFSS, the Department of Family and Support Services, if they are aware that they're missing uh, data on the outcomes of thousands of 311 calls. Yeah, what did they say? They did not acknowledge uh, whether they are aware that this data is missing or not. Um, they do. Say, they did say that they're working on evaluating how their system works, and they meet monthly with the Salvation Army to uh, sort of look over their metrics and, and their goals and whatnot. Um, but... Again, they did not acknowledge if they're aware that they're missing mm. all of this data. Wow. What did you find, Amy, about uh, requests that were successful? Like, How did those placements go? Yeah. Um, so what we were able to see from the data is kind of just this floor, the, the minimum number of people that they've actually successfully placed. We don't know if there's actually more. But um, we know that calls have more than doubled in the last couple of years since 2019. And it seems like the number of people placed has kind of remained relatively flat and slightly declined. Do we know what percentage that is? I even hesitate in to say to the, the number percentage, of calls? Um, but I, it, I would say it's kind of halved from what we were able to see. About half? Uh, like about 15% right now. 15 percent. But that also is just kind of a fuzzy number because we actually don't know exactly how much. How many calls there are in in total. So, Amy, you mentioned that the calls are skyrocketing. What's driving that? So we spoke to a couple advocates and shelter managers about this. I think it's it's kind of three things. Um, One is, you know, the pandemic, right? Job losses from the pandemic. People are losing their income and not able to keep up with rent, getting evicted. And then the second is that the uh, eviction moratorium uh, that was statewide ended in October 2021. Right. And so in the data, we literally see kind of a spike in the number of calls that occurred right after the eviction moratorium ended. So you have more people needing kind of emergency shelter or interim shelter to get a bed for the night when they're getting kicked out of their apartments. And then the migrant crisis. Um we spoke to advocate, immigration advocates who were saying that they've been told uh, from the city that they need to call, uh, that the asylum seekers need to call 311 if they're looking for anywhere to stay. Right. And so that's kind of driving a lot of the calls. And again, in the data, you can see like right in August when uh, asylum seekers started coming into Chicago is when you're starting to Everything see Everything goes spike. up. Yep. 
You're listening to Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking with WBEZ's Anna Savchenka and Amy Chin about how the recent rise in street homelessness and the growing migrant crisis are overwhelming the city's 311 hotline. That's the helpline that residents can call for city services, non-emergency police reports, and shelter requests. So as we've, we've talked about, on a several data entry errors here and, and flaws with how the information is actually entered into the system. What do we know about how well-resourced the, the 311 call center is when it comes to fielding these requests? Yeah, so as far as the team of people that are actually handling the, uh, all of these calls, uh, we know that... Uh, this hotline, specifically the shelter aspect of 311, they get about 160 to 200 shelter-related calls a day. The task of fielding those calls falls on anywhere between 2 to 10 staff workers, and their job is to dispatch all of these calls, uh, you know, call people back, and mm-hmm. then uh, coordinate transportation they are also manually entering all of this data that they're collecting from all of these calls into this database uh, that uh, we've been talking about. And for context, when when they are transporting clients to shelters, they have a van that they drive all around the city collecting people from anywhere from the north to the south side. There's no sort of centralized pickup location. So just the scope or, yeah, the scope that they cover, the service area that they're working with is huge. Two to ten people? Two to ten people per shift. We've talked about this growing migrant crisis too, Anna. So just give us a sense of how that is also affecting what you just described. Yeah, so we know that the city's shelter system operates about 3,000 beds. And uh, once uh, the migrant crisis became a priority for the city, they set up uh, about 4,100 beds specifically for migrants. Um, But we know that arrivals are now, have now surpassed about 10,000 people. And that has created this spillover effect with migrants being placed in shelters uh, designated for Chicagoans experiencing traditional street homelessness. And basically what that what that has created is this environment where there is just an extreme shortage of beds and way too many people yeah. that are calling this hotline asking for help. And and Amy, Anna mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I mean, did you present your, your findings to the Department of Family and Support Services and, and how did they respond? Yeah, we did. Uh, we sent them multiple emails, um, you know, word for word, even copy and pasted from our story at the time. Uh, and, and like Anna said, they, they acknowledge certain things. They acknowledge that, OK, yes, there are certain categories that we're working to fix to make more specific, like those categories, those catch all categories mm-hmm. that I mentioned. But by and large, they kind of just uh, didn't comment. They said, without looking into the data, we can't comment on this. Um, but we gave them, you know, multiple days, almost a week to, to look into the data. Um, but wow. yeah. Did they at least say anything about how they plan on addressing homelessness and, and this surge in asylum seekers on it? They did acknowledge that they're working on overhauling the system, and that means the shelter system. And that means a couple of things. They want to renovate shelters. Um, they're working on 
bringing back uh, the bed capacity that they used to have before the pandemic. Um, they had about 3,300 beds uh, before the pandemic mm-hmm. began. But uh, once COVID hit, they had to reduce bed capacities in shelters to stop the spread of the virus. Um, but we know that those uh, numbers haven't rebounded, uh, bed numbers haven't rebounded from pre-pandemic levels. So they're mm-hmm. working on bringing that back up. Aside from that, they're also... Uh, looking to purchase motels and hotels and repurposing them into new shelters uh, that would also, you know, increase uh, the, the the system's bed capacity. Um, and in light of the migrant crisis, they say they're going to keep evaluating what they can do to meet demand. Mayor Brandon Johnson wants to boost social services citywide, but needs to find the money for it, Right. What are some possible funding sources for for the city's housing needs? Well, the Biden administration uh, recently named a couple of uh, major U.S. cities that will receive two years of, quote, tailored support from the federal government to reduce street homelessness and connect people to permanent housing. Chicago is on that list. It will receive uh, two years of that support. And there will also be a federal official embedded in the area that will be helping with those efforts. Uh, we don't know what that what that's going to look like yet, um, but at least it's something that's on the horizon for the city. We've been talking with WBEZ's Anna Savchenka and Amy Chin. You can read their full story at WBEZ.org. Thank you both. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. Now, we should note that we invited the Department of Family and Support Services to participate in this interview, but the agency declined. A spokesperson sent a statement over that reads in part, quote, The best way to create capacity in the shelter system is by supporting households currently experiencing homelessness and moving on to appropriate and stable housing. DFSS has invested $35 million in American Rescue Plan funding and supplemental city investments to house 1,200 households residing in homeless shelters and unsheltered locations in 2023 and continues to support 1,000 households with rental assistance and supportive services, end quote. And we're back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. Before the break, we talked about a surge in calls for shelter requests and how the city's 311 helpline is struggling to keep up. Now let's turn to possible solutions for how the city's shelter system can work better for unhoused people and for asylum seekers. Our panel today includes Doug Schenkelberg, executive director of the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. Welcome back, Doug. Thanks. Good to be here. Mark Mulroe is president of A Safe Haven, which runs a youth overnight shelter and an adult interim shelter. Welcome to Reset, Mark. Glad to be here. And LaShonda Brown is Chief Officer of Quality and Impact of the Primo Center. Hey, LaShonda. Hey, Sasha. Nice to be here. Doug, start us off by uh, just helping us understand who we're actually talking about. We've said unhoused people uh, Mm -hmm. quite a bit here. How many people lack stable housing in the city and what kind of situations could they be in? Sure, absolutely. So Chicago Coalition for the Homeless does an annual estimate of the number of people who are experiencing homelessness in the city. Um, and we use census data and some administrative data to do that. Our estimate is that's about 65,000 people in the city of Chicago who are experiencing homelessness. And those are people who are on the street. Those are people in the shelter system. And those are people who are doubled up or couch surfing. So um, and they, they, that group makes up the largest percentage of that. 
So there's the also, folks who are doubled up yes. make up the largest. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, there's other measurements like the point-in-time count, which is done in January each year that looks just at shelter and people on the street. That's a much smaller number because of the way that that's done. Um, so, But we really look at the larger 65,000 number to really understand the full scope of the problem. Mark, what would you say that people often get wrong about homelessness? Are, are there certain misconceptions that you feel need to be addressed? Oh, definitely. I think a lot of people assume that a, homelessness is a choice, um, which is not accurate, or people are homelessness because they're failing to do something or they're failing to get a job or to work or to support their systems. But the, there's a total lack of affordable housing in Chicago, and the average cost of rent exceeds what most individuals are making in, in their wages. So there, it, it's a comp, very complex situation where you can't peg. There is no one face of homeless. Many people find themselves there be, due to changes in jobs, mm -hmm. um, due to medical conditions, substance use, uh, behavior, health. It's it's a myriad of, of things that affect and impact people. So it is that, that trying to peg what the homeless person is, is like that's that's a dangerous game to play. Various situations can, can land you right there, right? Um, Lashana, you specifically work with mothers and children who need immediate shelter. So tell us what unique challenges that group faces. Primo Center, we started off with the women and children. We have also moved over to working with um, single fathers okay. with at least at least one child. And we also have families. We have two locations. One of our locations is women and children, and that's located in Inglewood. And our Austin um, location has, you know, families, however their family shift, you know, makes up. And what I see is a lot of families coming in with a lot of trauma and with a lot of um, behavioral health issues due to childhood trauma. And so they're coming into, into the facility. We have our idea of what we think we need to do to help them, but we've turned the tables, basically, allowing them to guide their treatment. Because we, as Mark said, can't just assume mm. why this family is homeless. When you say they come in with, with trauma, what, what does that present they're, itself as? They're coming in with a lot of childhood trauma, a lot of generational homelessness. Um, you know, being raised by parents who are drug addicted or they were homeless themselves, a lot of sexual abuse. And so that affects them from their childhood to adulthood. And it really plays a factor into why they're homeless. Yeah. And so basically we're trying to break down, you know, the reasons they're homeless versus saying you need a house. Let's fight and let's advocate. Let's get income. Let's get you house. But we can get you house. But the thing is, will you be able to maintain your housing? We have to first help you at least stabilize to maintain that housing. And you just said a term that I think several of us who just heard it are still trying to wrap our minds around, and that was generational homelessness. Yes. Prior to me taking the position at the Primo Center, I worked at another um, agency called Beacon, and where we sent teams out into the shelter system to provide um, therapeutic services such, such as case management, community support, mm -hmm. and therapy. Um, and when I got to the Primo Center, I saw several of those children that are now adults wow. there. And it sh it, I was shocked because I've always worked behind the scenes. Now I'm in the forefront of homelessness versus just making administrative decisions on what should be done. 
you know, now I'm on the forefront and I'm able to see and engage and try to figure out, like, what happened. And so working with these families, you can see the trauma that they've been through and what makes it so hard for them to get housing and stay housed. Yeah. Doug, I want to go back to something you brought up before, which was the the point in time count, Mm -hmm. right? And for those who might not be familiar, that's when the the Chicago Department of Family and Support Services uh, tallies the number of residents who are experiencing homelessness uh, in homeless shelters, uh, encampments, other unsheltered areas. And and they do this on one night in particular in January. Um, So this year, the department uh, counted more than 6,000 people and asylum seekers were accounted Mm -hmm. for in that number and uh, were about a third of that number. Tell us, Doug, what kind of snapshot this count provides, you know, for these two converging crises, homelessness and the migrant crisis. Right. Um, So there's a couple different things. So with the point in time count, it's, you know, one, it's, it's an undercount of the number of people experiencing homelessness um, because it is done on one night. It's done on one, you know, typically a very cold night because, you know, it's January in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, people are finding other places to be safe that evening and it may not be in a traditional shelter setting or in uh, an encampment. They might be sleeping on someone's floor or something like that. So you're missing a lot of people when you do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the uh, asylum seekers, you know, if you look at the data, a lot of those individuals that were counted in this most recent count were in shelters that have been stood up just to help asylum seekers. Some of them are in the quote-unquote traditional shelters as well. Yeah. Um, you know, what it shows is that our system, you know, doesn't have sufficient capacity to serve um, everyone. And then it, that capacity was limited before we had this current crisis of asylum seekers coming in large numbers to the city of Chicago. Yeah. Um, and so it's uh, it just is showing that our system isn't set up to serve um, everyone who needs it. What spillover effects have you noticed, Mark, at, at shelters around the city? Well, certainly all the shelters are being taxed. I mean, their, their resources are being taxed at a very difficult time. You know, post-COVID, hiring was difficult to begin with. Um, so when you're trying to put together resources, because at a safe haven, we individually case manage each person comes in to deliver what service they need. Now you have another population coming in who have specific needs, and the city or the federal government hasn't necessarily set up the pathway to get them those needs. Yeah, you know, for mm-hmm. housing and for a job, you have to have you have to have your identification paperwork. You have to have your um, permits and the the system isn't set up to deliver those. So there, with a lot of them, are, what we're seeing is that they go to the cash economy. They try to get jobs um, at other places, and it, it's it's just a very it's a complex issue that um, I think one of the things that Doug brought up that we're not even addressing the total number we're trying to address. We have these. Numbers that are so underreported, mm-hmm. and then when you're trying to set up systems to deliver the needs, and you're underreporting the numbers, you're you're not going to have the resources that are necessary to meet that need. I understand, Lashonda, that migrant families currently reside at, at Primo. We do at both of our um, locations. We have migrant families, and I would say it's a challenge, but you know we're up for the task. It's just trying to, you know, meet their language barriers and. Their financial, you know, future financial income, because right now we're basically 
taking on the cost of supporting the family's needs by ensuring, you know, they have food, they have clothing, they have the basic necessities. Mm. So that's just something we we have to take on. And we know that number is just going to increase. So we're trying to be proactive. But again, as Doug and Mark said, financially, where is this going to come from? As we discussed earlier on the program, one of the resources that people turn to for immediate shelter is that 311 hotline. Uh, There's a recent WBEZ analysis that reveals that the system is both under-resourced and unreliable when it comes to completing shelter requests, right? You work with the 311 response team, LaShonda, every day. So what's your experience been like working with that helpline? My experience has been sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work well. Uh, I can say for the Primo Center, when we get the call for them to bring a family to our facility, that works smoothly. But we get a lot of outside calls asking, can we give them a bed? But again, we're a delegate agency of the Department of Family and Support Services. So we are required to accept referrals directly from, you know, the 311 crisis mobile team. And a lot of times they will tell us, we've been at the police station for seven days. We've been here for 10 days. And, you know, there's nothing we basically can do. But if, you know, there's a crisis, sometimes we will reach out to our delegate agency and see if, you know, if there's something we can do. But we have to understand that other shelter providers are in the same situation as we are. And they, you know, want to take in families Mm -hmm. as well. But we have to, you know, follow that protocol but again, when folks are calling 311 and they're sleeping at the police station and or hospital, they have to have their phone on them at all times. Because if there's a housing, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sorry, a shelter match, they have to be present. Yeah. And so if they don't pick up that call, they're removed off the list and they will have to go call back and get back on that list. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so if they don't have a phone, like if they're at the police station, they need to sit next to the um person who has the phone. Mm-hmm. Same thing as the hospital next to a security guard. That way, if 311 calls back and say, hey, family A, we have a placement for you. But if you're not there, you're coming off the list and you're going to basically start all over again. So wow. you may have been number four, but now you may be number 44. Wow. What can you add to this here, Doug? Just 311 trying to manage Yeah, I think this you know, number. one of the things that this shows is it's a, one more proof point of that, we underinvest in the system that's supposed to serve people experiencing homelessness. So when you have the emergency response system that is 311, unable to serve all the people that call, that they you know don't get callbacks, or the you know they have incredibly long wait times to get a callback, that's one area that the system's not serving them. And that, you know, is also that we don't have enough shelter beds. We don't have enough uh permanent housing units with support services. There are transportation issues, too. There are transportation issues. So it's, you know, we have a system that supposedly is supposed to go and pick up someone wherever they are in the city. um, And, you know, there isn't the infrastructure to actually do that for individuals. And it's, you know, it's a uh, the through line is the chronic underinvestment uh, in the system to serve people experiencing homelessness. And you're always going to have failures in a system that doesn't have proper investment. Yeah. So, Mark, what housing solutions would you propose here? Oh, <laughs> do we have an hour? Uh, yeah. um, We're going to try um, to fit it in. I'll tell you, uh, there, there's a lot of things. I think one is uh, with the 311 system, remove the bureaucracy from the system. Shelters used to be able to talk to each other to get better placements or more appropriate placements. and But since it has to go through this system that sometimes doesn't place people for 48 72 hours, um, we end up 
maybe getting inappropriate placements at a, a facility where you're kind of left to try to figure it out for yourselves. I think, mm-hmm. you know, there are investments that can be made um, with housing, affordable housing, but also the services that go along with it, you know, financial literacy, helping people learn how to remain housed, put them on a path to a more living wage income. Um, good luck trying to live in Chicago on minimum wage. I mean, Ooh. and and afford yeah. afford anything. Mm-hmm. And we, as we all acknowledge, as the system is terribly underfunded. Um, yeah. You know, you're, you're trying to take people in crisis and then the allocation is $22 a day. It's like you can't even live in Chicago for that. So it's, um, I think we all, you know, we, we would all love to see a bigger checkbook, but we'd also like to see a, a more managed system to provide the direct service to individuals so you can move them from that system. Well, the city's working to overhaul its shelter system by buying hotels and motels and repurposing them into new shelter facilities. Now, it's still in its early stages, but what, what do you think of that kind of plan, LaShonda? Oh, well, I, I think that's very interesting because what will happen to those buildings once allegedly the families are placed into housing? We've invested all this money into those hotels just to serve a temporary purpose where we can probably look at other avenues, maybe expanding the current shelter systems we have by um, offering them more money to maybe expand their total number of beds and increase their case management um, staff, just so many other things. But I understand, you know, the predicament that the city is in. And I'm sure the commissioner, she's doing her best to make sure that everyone, you know, that we're compassionate, that we are providing services to yeah. those folks that has already been in the system and those folks that are, you know, coming from the southern border as well. So I haven't really processed that yet, um, again, due to my work within the shelter and then Primo's foot at the table, you know, of right. all these other, um, such as coordinated entry and, you know, such as HMIS, just different avenues we try to keep our foot And this, know, as I said, table. is still in its early yes, stages, right? Yes. You still have to wrap your mind yes. around it. Uh, before we go, Doug, I mean, Chicago is expected to get support from the federal government for two years to reduce homelessness in the city. So briefly tell us the specific resources that you want to see from that aid. Well, I think, you know, the those resources, you know, help expand existing systems. I would say that, you know, the what we need is a longer-term strategy, and we need a longer-term investment. You know, and, and as you know, we've been working on a campaign called Bring Chicago Home mm-hmm. for several years now, um, which is about creating a dedicated funding stream at scale to provide housing and services to people. Which it sounds like the mayor backs. Yeah. So, you know, as a candidate, Brandon Johnson was very supportive, and he's continued to be supportive since he's uh, entered office, which is very encouraging to us. And so I think we're on a, a, a solid path to getting this in place. And this is what we need as a city. We need to stop waiting for a crisis to happen and scrambling to figure out how we respond to that crisis, but rather have a long-term strategy with real investment that reduces the impact of a crisis when it hits. We've been talking with Doug Schenkelberg with the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, LaShonda Brown with Primo Center, and Mark Mulroe with A Safe Haven. Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us.